We continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. You'll open to Exodus chapter 33. If you don't have a Bible, words will be printed on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide that you can pull up that has the scripture printed at the top along with an outline for you to follow along. Exodus 33, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6 and 12 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. When Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl was arrested by the Nazis in World War II, he was stripped of everything. He was stripped of his property, he was stripped of his family. He was stripped of his possessions. And up to that time, in the years leading up to that, he was spending time researching and actually writing a book on finding meaning in life. When they arrested him, they brought him to Auschwitz, that infamous death camp, and then they stripped him of the last thing he had, which was this manuscript of the work he had done over those years on finding meaning in life, he had tucked it into the lining of his coat and they even took that from him. 
He said this later about that experience. I had to undergo and overcome the loss of my spiritual child. He went on to say, now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a spiritual child of my own. I found myself confronted with the question of whether under such circumstances, my life was ultimately void of any meaning. Well, he survived and ended up writing a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it was in this book that he said this, there is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. He who has a why to live can bear almost any how. What are you made for? So often when we answer that question, we run to vocation or job. How often have you heard someone say, I finally found my purpose in life. I finally found my meaning in life and it is to do X or to do Y or to do Z. The problem with that is that even that can be stripped. Which means that ultimately the answer to what are you made for is relational. The answer is relational. You and I are made for the presence of God. We are made to know him. We are made to have an intimate relationship with him. That's what we're made for, the presence of God. We're going to explore the presence of God, specifically the need for his presence, the way into his presence, and then the assurance of God's presence. So let's begin with the need, the need for God's presence. In verse 1, God commands Moses to take the people to the land that he had promised. In verse 2, he promises to send an angel to drive out the inhabitants of the land. All good so far. But then we arrive at verse three. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's going on here? Although it seems just the opposite, verse three actually communicates God's desire to be with his people, to have relationship with his people. You say, how? First, verse three is not communicating or does not mean that God has trouble controlling his temper, that he's acting almost like a sulking child. If you're not going to worship for me, we're going to worship me, I'm going to take my toys and go somewhere else. Right? That, that's not what's happening here. The Bible oftentimes describes God in human terms because of God's desire to relate to and connect with his people. But that doesn't mean that God has sinful emotions like we have. When God says, I'm not going up with you 
lest I consume you, that's not God being hot-tempered. That's God being protective. He's being protective of his people. When, when God consumes someone in judgment, it's not that he loses his cool. It's his perfect righteousness addressing sin. God's holiness destroys sin. And that's a good thing because that means that sin and evil will not have the final word. That ultimately they will not last because God's holiness destroys sin. Second, what we note here is that the golden calf incident, one chapter earlier in Exodus 32, revealed Israel's sin on a whole new level. The first 31 chapters of Exodus reveal Israel grumbling and complaining a lot. But we get to chapter 32 and they make a golden calf and they begin to worship a false God. And suddenly it's not just grumbling and complaining, it is outright treason, it's rebellion against God. And it's under this circumstance that God calls them stiff-necked, which is a word that describes a farm animal that won't put the yoke on. And so what he's saying is my people are stiff-necked. They won't put the yoke on of obedience to me. And so it's under this circumstance that God says, I'm not going up with you lest I consume you this is actually born out of love. It's born out of protection. God does not want to consume his people in judgment. He already made the covenant and the promise that he was gonna rescue his people. And so what we see here is actually a deep act of love and protection for his people because he does not want to consume them in judgment. Third, notice what God is communicating in verse three to his people and what it's actually teaching his people. God basically offers them his blessing without relationship with him. He says, listen, I'll give you the land flowing with milk and honey. I'll even drive out the inhabitants. I'll drive out the enemies. So I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna give you peace, security, prosperity but I'm not going with you. In many ways, we fall into the same place today where we want God's blessing. We want the, him to rescue us out of the less than ideal situation as Israel was in in the wilderness. We want the blessing, we want the prosperity, but we're not necessarily interested in relationship with him. Pastor John Piper says it this way, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the foods you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Pastor Ray Ortland gives somewhat of an answer 
to this question when he says this. The worst this life can shove down our throats, but with the nearness of Jesus, is heaven on earth. The best life, the best this life can give, but without Jesus, is a living hell. Why? Because you and I are made for the presence of God. We're made for relationship with him more than anything else. The entire story, the entire book of Exodus is about that end, that purpose, God being with his people. And so everything serves that end. Even the beautiful truths and components of salvation serve that end. Justification, that you're declared righteous in Christ. Sanctification, that you're the promise that you'll be made righteous over time in Christ. Adoption, that you're declared to be God's child. Glorification, that you will be righteous for eternity. All those wonderful truths all point to one end. They're means to one end, and that is that you and I would be perfectly in the presence of God, enjoying relationship with him. Everything is moving towards that end. The story of salvation is a story of God always moving in the direction of closer intimacy with his people. The story of history is God drawing a people closer to himself. This is confirmed by Moses' request in verse 18. When Moses says, God, please show me your glory. Why is he asking to see God's glory? Could be that he understood the purpose of Exodus. God was saving a people for his glory. Could be that, that Moses was longing for just deeper intimacy with God. You know, Moses had direct communion with God, direct contact with God on the mountain, but he didn't see or experience the fullness of God's glory. And so God answers his request, but not fully. And he tucks him into the cleft of the rock and Moses only gets to see a glimpse of God's glory because the fullness of God's glory would have not been well, not been good. For Moses at that time, in that time of history, in the redemptive story, we are moving to the day when Jesus Christ returns, when the fullness of God's glory is before us. Our intimacy with him is perfect. You are made for God's presence. You need God's presence more than anything else in life. So that brings us to the second question. What is the way into his presence? What is the way into God's presence? Verses four to six. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, so now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What's the significance of them taking off their ornaments? Well, in other parts of Scripture, this act is symbolic of repentance. In fact, we see this in Genesis 35, verses 2 to 4, where God commands his people to throw off false gods 
And then we hear verse four, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. They took off their gold jewelry. They took off their ornaments. And that's exactly what God's people were doing here in Exodus 33, taking off their gold jewelry. Now, remember the progression of gold, right? They're rescued out of Egypt. God gives them the precious gift of gold jewelry. That's where the gold came from, came out of Egypt. That's part of their redemption. Then what did they do with that gold in Exodus 32? They built a golden calf to worship another God. Exodus 33, they repent and they take their gold off. Exodus 35, they're gonna take their gold and give it towards the building of the tabernacle, which is the presence of God. So you see this act of repentance where the gracious gift from God through repentance is being used for his glory, for his presence, for his people's good. This was true repentance on Israel's part. Now, how, how do we know that? How do we know this was true repentance? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel's idolatry is oftentimes described as adultery, spiritual adultery. Remember, when they made the golden calf, they didn't outright reject God. They didn't leave God. They just gave their affections and their love and their trust to another God while retaining Yahweh, retaining God. It was dual worship. And that's what adultery is. When someone commits adultery in their marriage, they don't leave their marriage. They just give their love and their affection and their trust to another person outside the marriage, which is why adultery right, destroys intimacy in marriage. It undermines relational trust. And so in a similar way, spiritual adultery draws you away from the soul-satisfying presence of God. It pulls you away from relationship with God. When Israel repented here, the reason we know it was genuine is because it says that they, they mourned. They wept. They grieved. And they didn't weep because they lost their jewelry or they had to take off their jewelry. That would be worldly sorrow. And there is a sorrow that is not repentance. There is a sorrow that is you lose something, a false God you're worshiping doesn't provide, you don't get what you want and you weep. That's worldly sorrow. That's not what's happening here. They're not weeping because they lost their jewelry. They're weeping because they lost or they were gonna lose the presence of God that they would move forward into the promised land without him. And that grieved them to think of moving forward without God. It was true repentance. And what we see here is the difference between sin as merely behavioral and sin as relational. Heartfelt repentance is relational not just behavioral modification. 
Let me try to explain the difference here through a couple examples. The difference between heart-level relational repentance and behavioral change or modification. Consider this example. God, I confess I drank too much. Please forgive me and help me limit my alcohol consumption. Okay, that's behavioral. I drank too much, help me not drink too much. Versus, God, I confess I drank too much because I love the God of pleasure. I love pleasure more than I love you. Please forgive me for my infidelity and unfaithfulness. I long for you and I long for your presence. Or let me give you another example. God, I confess I lied to my friend. Please forgive me and help me to tell the truth. That's behavioral. I lied. Help me not lie again. Versus, God, I confess I lied to my friend. Please forgive me. I lied to my friend because I love the God of approval. I love what people think of me more than I love you. Forgive me for my infidelity and unfaithfulness. I long for you and I long for your presence. That's the difference between heartfelt relational repentance and behavioral modification or change. I'll say it this way. Repentance always includes behavioral change. They took off their ornaments. But behavioral change doesn't always equal repentance. Repentance is not turning from one behavior to another behavior. Repentance is turning from one God who's dead to the one true living God. It's relational. You were made for God's presence. The way into his presence is heart-level repentance. Think about it on human terms. Some of the deepest moments of intimacy in a human relationship, whether it be a friend, whether it be a parent and child, or parent or spouse, some of the deepest moments of intimacy come on the heels of true repentance because it's a relational turn from another lover to the person that you love. And there's intimacy there, and it works that way with God. When you experience heartfelt repentance and you turn from certainly a behavior that, that is indicative of you worshiping another God back to God, there is intimacy and relational nearness restored. So you're made for the presence of God. The way into his presence is repentance. Finally, what is the assurance of God's presence? What is your assurance of God's presence? What was Israel's assurance of God's presence on the heels of their repentance? There's this very interesting exchange that happens between God and Moses in verses 14 to 17. 
In verses 12 and 13, Moses asked God, who are you gonna send with me to be with your people? God, who are you gonna send with me? And then verse 14, and the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God promises his personal presence, but he only promises it to Moses. He doesn't promise it to the people because verse 14, the you is singular. I will give my presence to you singular, Moses. Now notice how Moses responds in verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. You say, now wait a minute. God just promised his presence to Moses. What's Moses saying here? He's saying, God, yes, I need your presence, but your people need your presence. Us need your presence. And then verse 16, Moses does something interesting. He, he goes back to talking about himself. He brings himself into the picture. And you'd say, well, listen, God has already promised his presence to Moses. Why does Moses keep bringing himself back into the equation? Look at verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have, I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Why is Moses bringing himself back into the picture? even after God has already promised his presence to Moses. It's because Moses understands that Israel's fate depends on Moses' ministry as mediator. Moses is interceding for the people. And we see in verse 17 that God answers Moses' request. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that I have spoke, that you have spoken, I will do. So God answers Moses' request to send his presence, not just with Moses, but with the people. The question is why? Why did God answer Moses' request? We could speculate. We could speculate it's because God made a covenant promise and he was gonna have to be right on it. We could speculate it's because of Israel's repentance. It was really true, heartfelt repentance. We don't have to speculate because the end of verse 17 gives the answer. This very thing you have spoken, I will do. Why? For you, singular, Moses. For you, Moses, have found favor in my sight, and I know you, singular, Moses, by name. Why did God go with his people? Because God was pleased with their mediator. He was pleased with Moses, and therefore he was pleased with his people. Israel was assured of God's presence not because of their repentance. Israel was assured of God's presence because of their mediator, Moses. And what a beautiful picture that is of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many years later, God would speak very similar words to his son in Matthew 3:17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this 
is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Your assurance of God's presence rests on God's delight and pleasure that he takes in his son, Jesus Christ, your savior. And if you have trusted Christ and are trusting Christ for your salvation, then he is pleased with you because he is pleased with Jesus. Jesus does for us what Moses did for the people, albeit imperfectly in Moses' situation. In essence, Jesus says to his father, Father, if you're pleased with me, then save my people. And because the father was pleased with his son Jesus, the father says to Jesus, I will do the very thing that you have asked. Because I am pleased with you, I will save everyone who trusts in you. Oh, my beloved son, I will be as pleased with them as I am with you. Hugh Jackman, famous actor, played the lead role in a number of movies, talks about deep wounds from his childhood that still drive him today. When he was eight years old, his mother abandoned him and his father and his four older siblings. And when he realized that his mother was gone for good, fear and anxiety crept into him, said he would come home from school. He was always the first kid home to the house and he would be afraid to go in his house, just gripped by fear, gripped by anxiety. Said his father to compensate with the pain, worked long, long hours as an accountant. He said he remembers how his father would make it to one game per season in whatever school sport he was playing. And he says, when my father showed up, it was so much better. And he said, even to this day, speaking as an adult, he still longs for the approval of his father. He was at a, a play that he went to in Sydney and he was reading through the program of this play, and he, in the notes, found this quote from Bono, lead singer of U2. What kind of hole exists in the heart of a person when they need to have 70,000 people scream, I love you, in order to be fulfilled? Now, the reality is you and I will never have 70,000 people screaming, I love you. Maybe, maybe some of you will get really famous one day. But two, three, maybe four people for you is enough that would just affirm and validate you. There is a deep need in the human heart for affirmation and validation. Every person is longing to hear, this is my son. This is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And those words spoken from the heavenly father to his son Jesus are the words that are spoken to you if you are in Christ. The problem is we all, broke it. We all grow up in brokenness. And when we grow up not hearing that 
validation and that affirmation from our mother or our father. Our adult years grow into anxiety and fear, this incessant need to prove yourself, not feeling comfortable in your own skin. And if you grow up only hearing validation and affirmation when you succeed, if you only get the pat on the back when you do something good, then as an adult, you only feel like you're worth something when you're producing. The good news of the gospel is that you have a heavenly father that validates you and affirms you not based on anything you have done or will do, but based solely on what Jesus Christ has done. That's the affirmation that your heart is longing for to hear your heavenly father say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. If you're trusting Jesus Christ and you have trusted Jesus Christ, then God is as pleased with you as he is pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. The roar of applause from the father that falls on Jesus, falls on you if you're in Christ. And going back to the repentance piece, when we do sin, when we do fall into idolatry, when we start worshiping false gods, it's, it's this news that pulls you out of that. It is the amazing steadfast love of God his pleasure over you that pulls you away from those gods that can't satisfy and pulls you into his presence where your soul experiences that fullness of joy. In his book, Abba's Child, Brennan Manning says this, define yourself radically as one beloved of God. Define yourself radically as one beloved God basking in the presence of God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. Let's pray. Father, the news of the gospel is amazing. That you're pleased with us because you're pleased with Jesus. That the affirmation that you pour out over your son drips onto us if we're in your son. Father, we do confess that oftentimes we do long for your blessing but aren't that interested in a relationship with you. And yet we know that satisfaction, fulfillment, joy, all of that comes when you're, we're in your presence. That history is marching towards that moment when Jesus returns and we are basking in the full presence of your glory. And right now we experience your presence by faith and your son, Jesus. We confess that we need you. And we're sorrowful for running after other gods that don't satisfy. Father, we love you. 
We need you. And we thank you for your assurance that doesn't come from how well we repent, but comes from your son, Jesus. Would your steadfast love be what draws us away from sin and away from idolatry into your beautiful, glorious presence? And Father, would you fill our lungs to sing now of how much we do need you? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.